Uh, this morning's scripture reading is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and then chapter 21, verses 12 through 32. Uh, they're on pages 61 and 62 of your pew Bible. Chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Chapter 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he does not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place which, you may, which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his mother or his father and his or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who strikes him shall be clear, only shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely be fined, as the woman husband, woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. When an ox go gores a man, or a woman, to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but is not, not kept in it, it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thankful to the Lord for the reading of his word and trust that he will bless the, the preaching of it. We're back this morning to our study of the Ten Commandments, and I'm grateful that my father was here last week to preach on the Fifth Commandment. I think it would have been really hard for my mom and dad to, if they had to hear me addressing the topic of obeying your parents. Uh, they probably would have been throwing some tomatoes at me. So I was kind of glad that my father was willing to handle that one for me. But we're today at the sixth commandment, and here it is once again, you shall not murder. 
uh, four words in English, two in Hebrew. You guys kind of chuckled when Merrick read it for its bluntness. There's, there's no explanation. There's no justification. There's no promise attached to it. It's stated as bluntly as it possibly could be. Now, last week, um, since the fifth commandment was addressed to children, my father gave the adults permission to, to kind of tune out and nod off. And I fear that with this sixth commandment, most of you will already be starting to tune out and nod off. I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking this commandment doesn't apply to me at all, not even in the slightest. You have no inclination I hope to murder someone. And so you hear this command in the same way that you might hear a command from someone prohibiting you from eating dried asparagus, let's just say, okay? That th those commands come to you and you're like, got it. No problem, let's move on. But as we'll see, this command is not no problem. So I'm giving no one permission here today to nod off, just so, just so we're clear on that. And even though this command is short and it's seemingly self-evident, I think it's going to be worthwhile for us to dig a little deeper in it. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to three aspects of the sin that is at the center of this commandment. We'll see three H's as it pertains to murder. In the first place, let's look at the heinousness of murder. The heinousness of murder. H-E-I-N-O-U-S. Heinous means hatefully or shockingly evil, utterly odious, abominable. And I, could, I really could think of no better term to describe the, the snuffing out of human life other than it is absolutely heinous. In fact, this is one crime that is universally prohibited by all people throughout all times and in all cultures. Um, mankind universally sees the heinousness of murder and um, in their law codes and their various forms has outlawed it, has prohibited it uh, with the strictest of penalties. Now, when the Israelites hear the Lord thunder this particular commandment, from the mountain, it's not the first time that it had been issued to mankind. God had previously pro prohibited murder through Noah, and before that, through Cain. And I believe that that's, that's one of the reasons why this sixth commandment is so short. I think it's because it's not new territory. It needs no elaboration because it's nothing new. In our study of Genesis and Exodus so far, there's been ample example, there's been lots of teaching that demonstrates just how depraved the killing of another human being is. And uh, you may be familiar with that, you might not be, so um, either way, I think we should do just a brief review of uh, Genesis and Exodus as it pertains to murder. And we'll start with Genesis chapter one. That's always a good place to begin. With creation, we find the Lord God creating this world and everything in it. 
And uh, the world that he has created is described as teeming with life. It's just full of life. Everywhere you look, things are breathing and moving. And, and I don't think we should expect anything less than that God, the, the author of God, the living God, is going to be a God who um, everywhere he touches, life is going to spring up and, and breathe and flourish. And all living creatures are said to have the breath of life in them, a breath that was first puffed into them by their maker. The, the point here in the earliest chapter of Genesis is that the living God is a God who delights in life. But the pinnacle of God's creative acts, you'll recall, was the formation of the human person. And what made man so distinct from the rest of creation and distinct even from the animals is that we alone have been made in the image and the likeness of God, our creator. We were designed in such a way as to resemble God and to reflect his, his character and his glory. We're, we, we were given the great task of ruling over the works of his hands to take dominion uh, over all that he had made and to rule, so to speak, as, as little, little kings in the place of God uh, whose image we bear. Uh, and, and it's hard to imagine a higher calling, a higher dignity than, than that, that mankind could be made in the image and likeness of God. And I think that's very important because to see the true heinousness of murder, it first requires that we see the highness of man, the real dignity of man and the sanctity of human life. All of us bear the image of the God who has made us. And an essential um, part of God's plan and his purposes is that his image be multiplied and expanded, that his glory fill the whole earth as his image bearers reproduce and spread out into the four corners of the globe. And so very quickly came the first commandment to the man and to his wife, which was to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, human beings are given the, the great privilege and the great responsibility of creating more life reproducing the image of God so that it would fill the earth. And so Adam and Eve set out to do just that. They had Cain and Abel and Seth and a quiverful of others. But before that, something tragic happened, which is that they disobeyed the clear command of God, a commandment that prohibited them from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened was the man and his wife fell for the lies of the devil and consequently the, the world and the human race was plunged under the curse and under the realm of death. Tragic event uh, as it pertains to our species. Now speaking of the devil, uh, if it's true that God's person and his plan is in pursuit of life, well, then it is also true that our mortal enemy, his person and his plan is all about death. 
This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the devil is a murderer. And he's been that way from the beginning. Murder is heinous in, in one respect because it's so diabolical. It's, it's exactly what the, the devil would have us to do. It's perhaps not surprising then that one of the very first manifestations of sin after the fall is murder. You're familiar with the story of the first brothers, Cain and Abel. One was a shepherd. One was a farmer. And in due course, uh, Abel brought an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. He brought one of his, the firstborn of his sheep together with its fat portions, sacrificed that to the Lord. And Cain brought, he was a farmer, he brought, I don't know, asparagus. He, he brought, the text says, the, the fruit of the ground. And the result was that the Lord was very pleased with Abel and his sacrifice, but was not at all pleased with Cain and his. And Cain was very angry about that. So angry that he could kill. And that's just what he did, despite God's gracious intervention to, to warn Cain about what was going on in his heart, what was happening with this new reality called sin. And despite all of the warnings, um, Cain insisted in his intention to kill his brother. We read that he rose up in the field and killed his brother Abel. And God then came to Cain and said, and this is the same strategy that the Lord employed with his parents, uh, he said, where's your brother? And Cain famously responded, am I my brother's keeper? It's a rhetorical question that, that Cain believed that the obvious implied answer was, of, of course I'm not. But the obvious implied answer to that rhetorical question for Cain and for all of us is, of course. Of course we are our brother's keeper. This sixth commandment, I want to just point out, I think we've been saying this all along, but even though it's phrased negatively, it also implies all of the, the positive things that are on the other side of it. And part of what this commandment implies is that we have the, the positive duty, not just to protect and preserve our own lives, but to protect and preserve the lives of our fellow man. We are called to be our brother's keeper. Of course, the Lord knew where Abel was and what had happened to him. And the text explains why the Lord knows this. And it's not just because the Lord's omniscient and that he knows everything, but just judging by the, on the grounds of the text itself, it says God's own words are, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The heinousness of murder can be seen in, in this picture, I believe, of, of the blood which, which was shed, which is now screaming out for justice. And it's a cry, it's a shriek that reaches all the way up into the, the heavenly throne room and is pleading for, for God to respond in his righteousness. Do you, can you see that the shedding of um, innocent blood demands an accounting? 
It demands that there be some sort of retribution, some sort of vengeance. There is now blood guilt upon the killer. And it's not just on his hands, but it's on his record in heaven. And the only acceptable payment for this is blood. This was certainly the, the intent and, and the theme behind what Merrick read for us out of Exodus chapter 21. Blood for blood. More about that in a minute. I want you to hang with me. But first, let's just check in with the human race and see how we're doing in these first generations after the fall. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to a character named Lamech, who, first of all, has two wives, which is in direct defiance against the design of God from Genesis chapter 2. But then we find this guy bragging about the fact that he killed a man just for hitting him. He had gotten into an altercation with another dude, and this other dude had landed a blow, and Lamech killed him for that. And, and now he's bragging about it. He composes a song about this. You can see that in Genesis 4. And uh, if I had to guess the genre of this, I would guess that it would probably be gangsta rap. You know, he's, he's bragging about busting a cap in this guy. And furthermore, Lamech explicitly refers to his forefather, Cain, when, and, and then he kind of compares the two cases, what Cain did and what he did, and he concludes that Cain is basically a lightweight when it comes to murder. Can you believe that? Bragging about murder? Four chapters? Two, two chapters? After... Such a marvelous creation of the image of God. Well, I'm sad to say that the human race doesn't get any better. And then just a few more chapters down the road, wickedness is so rampant that we find the Lord God determining that he's going to put an end to all flesh. He's going to save eight people, Noah and his family, and he's going to do a redo. He's going to start over. So after Noah and his family steps off the ark, the Lord reissues this command for all of humanity, thou shalt not murder. For your lifeblood, he says, I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And here's the definitive statement. This is Genesis 9, 6, if you're following along. The Lord God says this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What we have here, folks, like it or not, is God's required punishment for those who commit murder. And that required punishment is capital punishment. It's the death penalty. Now, I understand that capital punishment is something that makes um, modern people just kind of recoil. And even, I, I think it's probably the case that even the majority of Christians today would oppose the death penalty. But I believe, on the other hand, that this is the clear command of God that has never been repealed. Rather, it's been affirmed, it's been reaffirmed 
We see it reaffirmed again in Exodus chapter 21. And then we see it again in the New Testament era, reaffirmed in Romans chapter 13, which describes the government as bearing the sword, which is an instrument of death. Bearing the sword, which is the the symbol that stands for the, the righteous, the just repayment for anyone that would murder which is that they, their lives need to be forfeited. So unfortunately, I don't have the time to defend that controversial uh, position. I, don't, I would like to be able to defend it to you in depth, but let me just say that the fact that the death penalty needs to be thoroughly defended is itself, I think, a demonstration of how our culture and even Christians have been lulled out of seeing the true heinousness of murder. Its heinousness ought to be seen by the severity of the punishment that it demands. Blood for blood. Now, just an aside here, some people object to capital punishment on the basis of the Sixth Commandment. And on the same basis, uh, some people object to hunting white-tailed deer or any other kind of animal. Some people on the basis of the sixth commandment object to participating in war or bearing arms for self-defense. But I want you to understand that what God is, is commanding here, this is not just a blanket command against killing because the Bible's gonna go on to explain and, and the Lord is gonna go on to command that some killing is justified and even required when the Israelites proceed into the promised land, they are going to have to engage in war, a righteous sort of a war. They're going to have to kill. And it is going to be at this explicit command of God. So this commandment, you understand, is not just blanket prohibiting all killing. This commandment is focused on unjustified killing unauthorized killing and that's why I think that murder is probably the best um, word to use in the translation okay so we're talking about the heinousness of, of murder and that Genesis 9 passage I think gives us two main reasons why it is so diabolical and here are the reasons in a nutshell it's heinous because it lashes out against God's person And it's heinous because it lashes out against God's plan. So, again, first of all, since man is the image of God, then you understand that snuffing out the life of man is equivalent to the attempt to snuff out the image of God, which is, I hope you can understand, the highest of crimes. The sanctity of, of human life is predicated on the fact that life is from God and it is for God and that human life is actually a reflection of God. To to murder a man is to slash at that picture of God's person. And then the second reason why murder is so heinous, it's a little bit more subtle, and that is that murder undercuts God's plan. And and we should notice the prohibition in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. 
is sandwiched between another command in two places. And that other command is this, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That's God's plan. That's God's renewed plan that Noah's family would create life and fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion over it and to fill it with his glory. And if you, if you understand that context, then we can more easily see what murder is. Murder is an, an attempt to reverse the plan of God, to stop the plan of God in its track and to go in the opposite direction. God's plan is all about life, and murder is about stopping that life and, and, and the increase of God's glory and kingdom. And I think we can... Say, see the, the same logic at work in Exodus, even though it, it's only implicit. But when just think for, for a minute about the narrower context of the Israelites. This is a people that this is the people that are receiving the sixth commandment. And we understand that that's the same people that God has called and created to, to be a people. This people began with one man, Abraham. And God had promised Abraham to make of him a great nation. He promised that one day um, the people that would descend from Abraham would be too numerous even to count, be more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky. Under the blessing of God, these people are uh, being fruitful and multiplying. Their numbers are expanding astronomically, exponentially. Given that incredible promise and given that incredible blessing, for Israelites to murder each other would be to act in real defiance. It would be, it would be to attempt to reverse the, the, plan, uh, the, the plans and the purposes of God for them. And it's hard to imagine anything more wicked than that, than putting yourself directly opposed to the direction that the Lord is moving. Make no mistake, friends. Murder is heinous. It's listed in Proverbs chapter 6 among the thing that the Lord, the things that the Lord hates that are detestable to him. Hands that shed innocent blood tops that list. And hopefully you agree with me. Hopefully you, more importantly, I hope, Hopefully you agree with the Lord about the heinousness of murder. But then again, maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe you have been lulled by the lies of our culture. I, I mentioned at the outset that murder is universally condemned by all cultures. And that is true to some degree. Many cultures are murderous, though including our own. But they would rather not call it murder because everyone's opposed to murder. And so they would rather use euphemisms and attempt to justify the killing so, so they're not unjustified killings. This is, this is what we do in our sophisticated United States of America. And so, for example, we call it choice. We call it the termination of a pregnancy. 
We, we call it the removal of uh, a clump of cells. Our governor calls it high-quality reproductive health care, which she vows to keep in this safe haven of New York. But, but let's call abortion, for what it truly is, murder. It, it's the callous and intentional killing of a precious unborn human person. And, and all for the sake of convenience. To the tune of some 63 million babies that have been butchered since 1973. So, so don't be lulled by the lies. You, you need to see the, the heinousness of abortion. And then on the other side of the spectrum, um, you have euthanasia. And I'm not talking about teenagers on the largest continent. I'm, I'm talking about the push to kill the sick and the elderly. But they call it dying with dignity. In, in Canada, the, the program is called MAID, which can you get any sweeter than a maid? You know, it brings the, to mind the image of, you know, a, a chubby, kind face, uh, an apron, uh, the smell of pine saw and biscuits in the, in the air. Maid, who doesn't love maids? But MAID stands for Medical Aid in Dying. And here are some lines from a National Post article on the topic. In the final moments before pushing the syringe, Dr. Chantel Perrault will pause and ask a final time, the medications I'm going to give you will cause your death. Is this what you want? The Toronto family doctor has been providing medical assistance in dying, made, since the act was decriminalized in Canada in 2016. Together, she and those colleagues across Canada willing to help end a life have presided over more than 21,000 deaths. This is 21,000 people who responded, yes, this is what I want. And within five minutes, eight minutes max, there's a lifeless corpse lying on the hospital bed. And those are numbers from July of last year. They, um, they've just been going up exponentially ever since. And this stands to reason because it's not very long, history tells us, it's not very long before a right to die, which is another euphemism, becomes a duty to die, especially when your healthcare system is strapped for, for funds and resources. But this, my friends, is to snuff out the image of God prematurely. It, it, it's essentially playing God. And people, people argue this way. They say, look, when my dog is suffering, the compassionate thing to do is to put him down. Am I supposed to show more compassion to my dog than to my granddad? That's how the logic goes. But as Pastor Colin Smith says, the only person that could ever say that or believe something like that is a person who has failed to recognize the huge distinction there is between a dog and a human person. We are, we are bearing the image of Almighty God. And it is God alone who has the authority to give life or to take life as he sees fit. 
And then finally, consider suicide. I, I said that. I said that wrong. Don't con- please don't consider suicide. That, that, but that's exactly my point. I think that when we think of murder, we, we picture two people, you know, a perpetrator and a victim. But suicide is just as much a breach of the sixth commandment. It's just that the, the perpetrator and the victim are the same person. And 10 years ago yesterday, uh, we lost a, a friend to suicide. And, and since that time, I, I have sought to equip myself as much as possible to be a, a friend and a help to those who are going through such, a, such severe depression that they're having suicidal ideations and, and thoughts. And I, I, this is one area that I feel so inadequate in, and I want to be as compassionate and helpful as I, as I possibly can be in situations where people believe that there's no hope. And if that happens to be you today, if you are in that place, I want to hear you. I want to help you. I want to be able to speak hope to you. This is is a day of hope. So I want to just um, reassure you that you don't have to suffer in silence. Let us, let us, let your friends bear your burdens with you and, and let us comfort you. And that, that's my present and my open-ended invitation to, to you who, who struggle uh, with, with depression and with uh, these sorts of thoughts. So because I find myself so, so inadequate, I, I've been to a number of classes on how to be a better friend to those who are suffering and who are at risk for suicide. And so much of that material has been very helpful to me. However, I've also noticed that it is the trend to treat the suicidal as only the victim. I I realize this is a delicate topic, but I want to be able to, I want to be able to say this. I want to be able to go there. The, The language is especially aimed at communicating to the suicidal that they are, they would only be a victim. So it's no longer acceptable to speak of a person committing suicide because that word commit calls, uh, it has too strong of a connotation of, it's the language of a crime. It's what you do when you do something bad. And, and we don't want that stigma to be attached to such vulnerable people. And instead, what's preferred is to say that someone died by suicide, or better yet, to, to view suicide as a sort of disease, an, an epidemic, really, that, that people fall prey to. And so we're supposed to say that we lost someone to suicide, like, like I said a, a minute ago, and it's okay if you say that, but it's not okay if, if you're trying to just escape the reality. You know, when you say that we lost someone to, to suicide, if you mean it in the same way that we lost them to cancer, th- there, is, there is a difference, isn't there? 
listen, I, again, if you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. And please don't hear me uh, wrongly. I am full of compassion for you. In fact, here's how much I love you. I love you so much to tell you that you're not just a potential victim, but you're a potential perpetrator. I, I love you enough to tell you that what you are might be considering doing is a, a wicked and a grievous thing for you to do. This thing that you thought of doing, it's, it's heinous. It's a, it's a violation of God's clear commandment here. The Lord hates, he detests hands that shed innocent blood, even if that innocent blood is your own. Are you convinced of the heinousness of murder? Are you convinced of the heinousness of abortion, of euthanasia, of suicide? I'm still concerned that there, there might even be many of you here today that still thinks that none of this really applies to you. So then let's move to see a second thing. Let's see the, the heart of murder. Last week, it was necessary for us to move into the New Testament to see how the command for children, you know, specifically applies to children and young people who are in the Lord. In the same way, we want to turn to Jesus to help us understand what is required of us as it pertains to murder. And I regret that what I'm about to say, I... This is something else that I don't have enough time to satisfactorily uh, defend for you. Uh, I, I feel terrible about dropping all of these heavy things on you. But I expect that we're going to return to this idea maybe even next week, Lord willing. But I at least want to just kind of plant the thought in your head that what we find Jesus doing in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount is incredibly important. Okay? It's significant, first of all, that he's on a mountain. That's not just some incidental, that's not just an accident. Jesus is on a mountain, and he stands on that mountain as the new Moses, as the new lawgiver. And just as God gave his law through Moses to the people as they were about to take possession of the promised land. So Jesus is giving his law to his people, kingdom citizens, who are about to take possession of that kingdom. Jesus says, this is, this is what living in my kingdom under my rule looks like. And Jesus himself makes very strong allusions to the Ten Commandments. And, and he uses the language of fulfillment. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said long ago, you shall not murder. Now let me just uh, let you know that most interpreters, what they see, what they believe Jesus is doing there when he's saying these sorts of things is that he is just kind of 
helping it, giving us a fuller explanation of what was in the Mosaic law. Or perhaps uh, a, a bunch of other commentators will say what Jesus is doing here is he's clearing up a lot of misunderstanding and misapplication by the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. But I don't believe that Jesus is doing either of those things. And the reason that I think that is because he's actually quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, verbatim. When he says, you have heard that it was said long ago, you shall not murder. That's a direct quote from the Ten Commandments. And then when he says, but I say unto you, you can see that he's making a strong antithesis between what the commandment requires and what he, the new Lord, the new lawgiver is requiring. And by the way, what Jesus requires is a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus' law gets, gets right down deep into our hearts. And in this case, Jesus' law gets right to the heart of murder. The sixth commandment says to us, do not murder. But Jesus says to us, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you insult your brother, if you're so angry with him that you lash out and, and insult him and dismiss him as a fool or a moron, call him raka, then you are guilty. And as John says in his letter, his first letter there, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This, you can see the apostles following Jesus' teaching here because James in his epistle equates coveting and quarreling with murder. He says this, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's out of the, it's out of the heart that come things like evil thoughts and murder. So Jesus' point is that you're not off the hook because you've never slit anyone's throat. You're not off the hook because you've stabbed people in the back. Out of, out of the hatred and the anger and the resentment that's in your heart, you have lobbed fatal words at people seeking to destroy them. And, and maybe it has destroyed them. And you've done that even to your own brothers and sisters in the faith. You've, you've used your words like daggers. And the point is, friends, that all of us have the heart of a murderer. All of us have murderous intentions in our heart. And we know that this, we know the sober reality is that the, the portion that murderers have is the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation tells us that. It's describing an eternal death penalty for people with murderous hearts like us. And my question here at the end is, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Let's turn then to our third and final point, the hope for murderers. 
And what a, an appropriate thing that we would end the service the same way that we began, which is a reminder of the hope that comes with the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the hope for those who have murdered people, whether it was with swords or whether it was with words. Our hope is anchored in the fact that God is merciful. God is just so merciful. He's slow to anger and he's full of compassion. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And so the same God who thunders from the mountain this command, thou shalt not murder, this is the same God who graciously offers in the very next chapter that if there's anyone that may have shed blood unintentionally, that, that they can run to a, a city of refuge and be saved from any vengeance. And I think the principle, I don't have any backing on this, this is just a hunch, but I think the principle of a city of refuge harkens back to the case of Cain. Cain, whose punishment was overwhelming to him, it was too much for him to bear, and so God mercifully gave him a mark that would save him from any kind of a vengeance that would rightfully want to come his way. God is rich in mercy, and we see this most explicitly in the incarnation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who as soon as he was born, he had Herod's crosshairs on him. He had like the, the little red dot dancing around. People had murderous intentions towards Jesus from day one. And throughout his ministry, you can see people plotting and attempting his murder. And then finally, they did murder him. With wicked hands, they put him to death. But little did they know that they were carrying out the predetermined plan and purpose of God. Little did they know that Jesus was dying in the place of wicked sinners. And Barabbas was a sort of, of symbol of, of substitution. You, you remember Barabbas? They crucified Jesus in the place of Barabbas. Barabbas, who was released, he got off scot-free. Barabbas, who was a murderer. Jesus dies instead of him. And our hope is found in the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners. For people who have committed the most heinous sins, like first-degree murder, or who, people who have had an abortion, or who have contemplated suicide, for people who uh, administer lethal doses to sick patients, for, for people who have hated others without laying a hand on them, for people who have hatred deep within their heart, for folks who lash out using their tongues like sword thrusts, this is who Christ died for. And I'm describing, I think, you and me. The good news is that by repentance and faith, you and, you and I can be forgiven. We, we can be forgiven of our sins and, and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You think Abel's blood was loud when it cried out and reached heaven. Well, that's nothing 
compared to the blood of Christ. The author to the Hebrews makes this point when he says that Jesus' blood that was shed on behalf of sinners, it speaks a better word than Abel's. And though it was spilled on, on Mount Calvary, it, it, its cry reaches up to the very throne room of heaven and screams not Yahweh avenge, rather that blood screams Father forgive. Because all of, all of the wrath against your murderous heart All of that wrath that is coming towards you has been satisfied by the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. And the hope for murderers and people with murderous hearts is that Christ has taken our death penalty upon himself. Our hope is in the body of Christ that has been broken for us. Our hope has, is fully in the blood of Christ that has been spilled for us. And now we have the, the great opportunity to remember that fact, to take hold of that hope once again in the most tangible way, and that is to celebrate this supper that he has instituted for our remembrance.